the Bible. Are you intimidated at the thought of reading such a complicated book? Do you find it daunting or delightful or both? Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. The Bible book club, where we read every word of this great book and then study it together. Last episode, Moses and Aaron approached Pharaoh for the first time, and Pharaoh was not happy. He was an arrogant old man. He told them, you get back to work. (laughs) And then, he, you know, he was cruel, that Pharaoh. So he increased the labor. It was a political move against the Israelites, against Moses, and it worked. Moses was crushed. He did not run to the desert this time, though he ran to God. And God gave him a promise and a plan. And he'll do the same thing for you if you run to him first. Exactly. Well, today we are going to read about the first plague. But before we get to that, we have a genealogy uh, just stuck right there. We don't know why, but I'm going to get to that. We do know why. So there are dozens of genealogies in the Bible, and most people just kind of gloss over them. But you know, we like to read them because after you know what they do, they're so fascinating. And we covered a lot of these in Genesis 1, our first season for the Bible Book Club. Well, let me just tell you that the Hebrew term for genealogy is really the book of generations. And that would that's what it is. It's like a little tiny book of the generations of God's people. And genealogies were important for several reasons. The first was they confirm the historical reliability of the Bible. They are carefully copied and passed down. So they do give us a historical record that matches up with time frames. The second reason they're important is they show the importance of the family and God's plan because, of course, the genealogies are about the sons of sons of sons of sons. It's all about family. They also validate the fulfillment of prophecy. Let me say that again. They validate the fulfillment of prophecy. For example, there's a prophecy that the seed, Jesus, would come from the tribe of Judah. And we documented that in our Christmas genealogy from season one. So go back and listen to that. They also document God's use of a of diverse individuals. There are men, there are women, there are murders, and there are prostitutes in the and genealogy. everything in between. Everything. And that's just the melting pot of life right there. And that's comforting to know. All right. This genealogy that we are about to read appears to be randomly inserted right in the middle of a conversation between Moses and God about what to say to Pharaoh next. Such is the way with Moses. He does write some random stuff sometimes, or in this case, not. Why is he pausing right in the middle of a story? Perhaps in documenting this story for us, he is humbled by the way his older brother took the lead for him, because we're going to see this genealogy is going to veer off to the line of Aaron. Or perhaps Moses sticks it in here because he was having an aha moment. You see, Moses and Aaron are on the brink of connecting a 400-year-old promise from the past to the future of a nation. And it, it had to at some point suddenly dawn 
on Moses that he and Aaron were the missing link, missing for 400 years. They are the link between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the land that God promised Abraham more than 400 years ago. So Moses pauses right here to connect the dots. He starts the genealogy where it left off with the oldest of Jacob's 12 sons. Chapter 6, continued in verse 13. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. These were the heads of their families, the sons of Reuben. The firstborn son of Israel were Hanuk and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These were the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohor, and Jahul, the son of the Canaanite woman. These were the clans of Simeon. These were the names of the sons of Levi, according to their records, Gershon, Kahath, and Merari. Levi lived 137 years. All right, so pause right there. We've gone through the first three of 12 sons, but he's not going to give us the other nine. Right here, he's going to veer off down the line of Levi. At this third son named Levi, Moses takes this turn and begins to list Levi's descendants rather than continuing with the rest of Jacob's 12 sons. Verse 17, the sons of Gershon by clans were Libini and Shimei, the sons of of Kohath were Aram, Ishar, Hebron, and Uzeel. Kohath lived 133 years. The sons of Merari were Mahali and Mushi. These were the clans of Levi, according to their records. Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, who bore him Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. The sons of Ishar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uzeel were Mishael, Elsaphan, and Sithri. Aaron married Elisheba, daughter of Amminadab, and sister of Nashun. And she bore him Nabad, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithmar. The sons of Korah were Aser, Elkanah, and Abispath. These were the Korite clans. Eleazar, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These were the heads of the Levite families, clan by clan. It was this Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. This same Moses and Aaron. All right, so he goes down this Levite line, which turns out to be his line, and he talks about, you know, Jochebed bearing Aaron and Moses, but then instead of following his own line, he follows Aaron's. And we kind of get forward past Aaron into some really important names that we're going to read about later in the Bible. So why? The genealogy ends with Phineas a very important Levite in the future of our story. Moses here is making a point by bookending the genealogy with Levi, the son of Jacob in the beginning, and Phineas, a Levite hero and priest. 
rather than listing his own family. The point of this genealogy is to establish Aaron's past and the priest's future importance in the deliverance of Israel and Egypt. So this was really about his big brother. This is probably something I should know, but I'm going to ask this question anyways. I know we covered this. Which line does Jesus eventually come from? Is it both? Because I remember Joseph was one. I, I know Judah, but Aaron from Aaron and Moses. He doesn't. It's not from this line Jesus at all. Does not come from this line. So these at all. are just okay. That's right. So it was Judah and Levi were brothers. They so were brothers. That's why they're talking so much about the Levite line here. They're not going to have any relationship to Jesus, anyways. They're just the priests. Yeah, and he's setting up that the future of the priesthood is going to live there. So remember, Moses is writing this looking back. He's already lived through all this, and he knows that Phineas, this great priest, is going to come and others. And so he's saying, hey, Aaron's the father of all these guys. This is where it started. It so started with Aaron, to him. He knows yeah, what he's talking who's about, one, of the, one of the great, great, great grandsons of Levi, who's a son of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. Even though not the line that Jesus will come from, they're still no. important. Yes. That's and what he's saying. So if you'll remember really way back in Genesis, remember, Levi gets in trouble with his brother. See, I told you I knew I should have known they, that, but I Because they, when Tamar, yes. is, when Tamar is raped, is it Tamar? No, it wasn't Tamar. It was... Um, Dinah? Dinah. So Levi gets in trouble. Because they go out to avenge her and they don't tell. But later, Levi, when Jacob uh, gives the blessing to all his sons... He says he needs to be the priest. Well, he doesn't say that, but he predicts his future. And um, I can't remember what Levi did to be absolved. But anyway, we'd have to go back and listen to our own <laughs> podcast because we can't remember. <laughs> so, yes, this line, Moses and Aaron are the link in this promise between Abraham and, you know, going getting to the promised land. And also Aaron, we're going to see Moses is going to start taking the lead. Aaron is going to recede. But what Moses is giving him credit here for is he doesn't recede. He is the father of the line of the priesthood. And that's really good because Moses didn't think he could do it anyway. And so you're right. It is him showing humility about the fact that he, it's not him who did this. He couldn't have done it without him, basically, is what he's trying to say. And because Moses is going to figure so centrally in the rest of the story, you do kind of lose Aaron. And I think he wants to say, hey, but it's not my name and my kids' names that live on forever in history. It's the Levite line. And that's Aaron because he was the first priest. like that. Yeah, it's cool. Moses is humble. All right. Continuing on in verse 28. Now, when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Okay, now you're having deja vu, right? Yeah, he keeps saying this over and over. Moses just asked this same exact question 20 verses ago and another time two chapters ago. The question gets shorter and weaker every time and every time God ignores him. One thing for sure, and I love this about Moses, that is is that as author of this book, he does not hide his faults from us because he, he's the one that wrote this in there. So he's saying, yeah, I'm the dumb one. I asked God this three times. 
That's a good point. Yeah, he could have just he could have left it out, put it in. Yeah, but he wants us to know, and I'm sure God told him they need to know how sorry you were in the beginning of this (laughs) because you were really bad. And he tells us he was a doubter and would have bailed on the whole mission had God allowed it. And and that's (laughs) a question for us. That is just such a good point. So the question is, do you? know your your doubts do you know your weaknesses you acknowledge them and then what are they and do you take them to god or do you hide them from everyone yeah (laughs) that is amazing because i probably if i was moses would have hidden it Mm -hmm. or at least just played it down but he doesn't do that Mm -mm. that is such that's my bible bender for today yeah most people when they write their own um, autobiography um, cast themselves in a a better light well most people when they go on instagram cast themselves in a better light (laughs) true (laughs) true okay chapter seven here's our setup in episode one we discussed in the overview of this book that Exodus is the story of how God delivered the Israelites from Egyptian oppression, created a covenant relationship with them at Mount Sinai, and then dwelt among them in the tabernacle. We have already identified who God will use to deliver the Israelites from the Egyptians, Moses and Aaron. Now our story turns to how God will deliver the Israelites from the Egyptians. God is going to use plagues. So here is our plague overview. Stay with me. There is a lot to these plagues. The plagues are going to accomplish several objections. First, the plagues are going to demonstrate God's dominion over creation to everyone, but especially to the Egyptians, because they have all these gods of creation. Now, in the beginning, listen to season one, Genesis, God created order out of chaos. He created the world out of empty, formless darkness. God made the world and everything in it for our good. And God has the power to reverse that if it suits him. The plagues can be looked at like creation reversals. The order in the world becomes chaotic. Water becomes a source of death rather than life. Animals harm rather than serve humanity. Light ceases and darkness reigns. And whereas God created humans on the last day in creation in Genesis, the climax of the last plague is the destruction of humans. Are you tracking with me? The destruction of the Egyptians. Yes, but humans. So, you know, in Genesis, in creation, the last day, God created humans. Well, in this case, the climax of the last plague is... That just God's going to destroy some human. And in the Bible, it also says that where there's God, there is order. Yes. And so you're right. The opposite is true of these plagues because there was no God in Egypt or they well, had all their other gods and it wasn't the one true God. God is demonstrating. You think your gods can, can, can protect you? I'm going to show you what I can do to creation. Mm-hmm. You're worshiping false gods and you think they control everything. I'm going to show you what I can do. And he's going to, I think some of the plagues are almost humorous to me, the beginning ones. So I'm going to get to that, but track with me. So that's one reason, one objective of the plagues. A second one is this, the plagues are going to prove that it is God alone who rules the world. 
The Egyptians had numerous gods, many ruling over some aspect of creation, like I said. Each of the plagues was a direct challenge to one of those gods. And in each case, God won, disqualifying the Egyptian god and undermining Pharaoh, who was the supreme man god. So he's chipping away at Pharaoh's confidence because he's proving that, oh, yeah, you think you worship this god over here? Uh, I can I can do better than him. And so the Egyptians believed that Pharaoh was the supreme God kind of over all the other gods. So it's very cool. Then the third objective, the plagues are going to be God's visible judgment on the Egyptians. For 400 years, the Israelites have suffered and died at the hands of the Egyptians. And the last plague, the death of the firstborn Egyptian son is a judgment for the murder of all those Hebrew boys at birth. It's like a son for a son. An eye for an eye, which is what they thought back then. The fourth objective, the plagues are going to provide freedom and wealth to the new nation of Israel. God promises Moses in 321, and I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. I mean, when Moses heard that back in chapter three, he probably rolled his eyes and went, yeah, right. <laughs> the Egyptians are never going to give us anything, but they do. Well, you may not worship gods that look like bugs or animals, just like the Egyptians did. But I think if we're all honest, we all have idols. So what are yours? Is it your reputation? Do you, is it your money, your things, your phone, another person, your marriage? Sometimes that can even be an idol. Your kids. What do you hold, unintentionally, but what do you hold more important than God in your life? If you write down your values, most of us write down that our values are God is first. But if you write down your calendar, does it match? Mm, Nice. All right, here's another fun plague fact. The plagues have similarities and differences. To get a picture of this and understand the similarities and differences, we have created a chart, and it'll be in the show notes, that covers each plague, who initiated it, whether the magicians could reproduce it, whether or not Pharaoh begged for it to stop or he really didn't care, whether Pharaoh hardened his heart or God hardened it for him, which Egyptian god was being attacked and disqualified, the type of chaos that resulted in creation, and what was the outcome of the destruction. So each plague, that's where we're going to be looking at. And and you can um, get that in the show notes if you really like to analyze things. It's kind of fun. All right, here's another thing about the plagues. There are four divisions and a pattern to the divisions, which I think is so creative of God and Moses. In the first three divisions... The first plague in each division has a warning to Pharaoh that always comes in the morning. So we will have three plagues with a warning to Pharaoh in the morning. The second plague in each division just has a warning. And the third plague has no warning. I never saw this before, but there it is. So here you go. Division one, the first three are the plague of blood, which has a warning in the morning, the plague of frogs, which just has a warning, and the gnats, where there is no warning, the plague just happens. Division two... And by warning, you mean Moses is going to Pharaoh saying, hey, 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 if you don't do something and let us go, 
it's going to come. Right. I did okay. not realize there are actually three plagues in here, one in each division, where there is no warning. It just happens. Mm-hmm. Aaron and Moses just like throw some dust in the air or something like that, and stuff happens, and and Pharaoh's left to figure it out alone in his palace. Division two are the flies, where there's a warning in the morning, livestock, where there's just a warning, and then boils, no warning at all, which that was a really rough one. Division three, you've got hail, warning in the morning, locusts, just a warning, and the dark no warning at all. The fourth division stands alone. It is the death of the firstborn. And yes, there was a warning. All right. Now that you can understand the um, structure of the plagues, it's time for the fight to begin. Now there is a fight scene set up. So picture this. Pharaoh has already thrown the first punch by increasing the Israelites' work. It was a painful punch to Israel last week and an emotional punch for for Moses because he it undermined him in the eyes of the Israelites, which you know he's kind of sensitive to. In response, Moses ran back to God for some more coaching. As we pick up the story in chapter seven, Moses has run back to God and God is encouraging Moses to get back in the ring with eight I statements. A strong reminder to Moses that the I am is in control and Moses can trust God to do the fighting. Chapter seven. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and although I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, when with mighty acts of judgment I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. All right. So Moses is all coached up. He's encouraged and he is going to get back into the ring. And there is going to be a warm up to the fight with Pharaoh. As with all fights, there is a little preliminary dancing around the ring as the opponents warm up. The fighters kind of circle the ring, sizing each other up and jabbing the air, or in this case, throwing down snakes. This initial sparring goes down a little like this in our fight between Pharaoh and Moses. Verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. All right, this is really cool. There's a lot of commentary as to whether the Egyptian sorcerers used illusion or real power. We just don't know. So I don't want to talk about that part. Certainly, however, Satan was not on God's side and could have aided them with real power. We just don't know. But here's what's more important. And that is the message God is sending in this demonstration. For the Egyptians, the snake is a symbol 
symbol of royalty or divine authority. And we talked about this before. Pharaohs often wore it on their headdress because, of course, they wanted the sign of divine authority because they thought they were gods. In this verse we just read, it says that Aaron's staff or snake swallowed the Egyptians' snakes. And it was plural. The Egyptian threw down several. We don't know how many. In other words, the Israelite divine authority, remember they they saw the snake as a divine authority. The Israelite divine authority, Aaron's snake, swallowed the Egyptians' divine authority. What is God saying here? I'm going to eat you alive. I'm going to eat your God's life. Wait till you see. Though, now check this out. This word swallow or bala is used only one other time in Exodus. In chapter 15, it is used where the sea swallows up the Egyptians. In other words, the Israelites' God, the one true God, swallowed the Egyptians just like in this dancing demonstration before. God is sending a message to Pharaoh using his own arrogant symbol, a snake. The beginning of the fight is an ominous illustration of how the fight will end. And I think that since you were saying that Moses was coached up by God, I think that's smart of God. Not that God needs to know that I think he's smart, <laughs> but um, to not tell Moses that that they also had their own ways of getting, the, like, I think if he had told Moses, okay, you're going to throw down Aaron's, Aaron's going to throw down a snake and he's going to turn into a snake and then they're going to make snakes. And then you're, he probably would have been freaked out, right? He, he already didn't have confidence. Mm-hmm. So I think God was trying to give him confidence. So he would go in there and I bet you when they then started their snakes, Moses probably was getting a little scared. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I I just love that God had a plan from beginning to end. He 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 sets up the preliminary of this fight to demonstrate this is what I'm going to do. The end. Yeah. And nobody could have known it, but I'm sure again when Moses looked back on it, he was like, "Oh my gosh, it was there all the time." But how would Moses ever guess that God was going to part the Red Sea and and they were all going to drown? And they'd be swallowed up again by God, just like the snakes were swallowed up again. It's very cool. Well, there's a difference between Moses resisting God and Pharaoh fighting God, right? So I guess that's the question for you today. Are you fighting against God in any area of your life? Do you obey God sometimes, but then other times try to compromise? Which is what we're going to see Pharaoh does. Well, he doesn't ever obey God, but he tries to compromise. Yeah. All right, here we go. Fight round one, the plague of blood. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let his people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish of the Nile will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your 
your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died. The river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. All right, so let's analyze this plague of blood. It has parallels with other passages in the Bible. It wasn't just random. There is a parallel between the plague of blood and the Red Sea. The plague of blood is the beginning of Israel's deliverance. The death of the Egyptians in the Red Sea is the end of Israel's deliverance. The blood of the plague in the Nile will soon become the blood of the Egyptians in the Red Sea. The entire story is bookended by these two acts of God using water to save his people, which foreshadows Jesus, the ultimate savior of his people, providing living water. John 7:38 says, "Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water" will flow through them. There's another parallel between the bl- plague of blood and the decree to kill Hebrew babies by throwing them in the Nile. So Pharaoh used the Nile to kill the Israelites. He drowned the babies. Jochebed uses the Nile to save Moses from Pharaoh. Then God uses the Nile and Moses in this very first plague against Pharaoh. So just so such rich imagery there. Yeah, such a water. circle. Yeah. It's such a circle. Well, you know what what else I think is funny? Not funny. It's not funny. But those, they saw that it turned to blood and then they're like, well, we can do that too. But that's going to hurt all the people. Wouldn't you think they would, maybe maybe if you have the power, then why wouldn't you just turn it back into water? Why would you then make it worse? That is the point we're going to make next week with the frogs because they just produce more frogs. There's too many frogs. I'm like, the trick would have been to like make the frogs disappear. They just weren't very smart guys. No, they weren't very smart. And next week, the fight is going to continue between God and Pharaoh, but it becomes messier with frogs, gnats, flies, and livestock. Oh, that sounds fun. I can't wait. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to SusanMe.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio, edited by Buck Buchanan, produced by Haley Mawatt.